Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. No housekeeping. Today I'm speaking with Jason Freed. Jason is the co-founder and CEO of Basecamp, formerly 37 Signals, which is a Chicago-based software firm which produces the Basecamp product. He's also the co-author of the book Rework, among others, and he also writes Inc. Magazine's Get Real column. And I invited Jason on the podcast to discuss the recent controversy over his no-politics policy at Basecamp, which caused quite a firestorm on social media, as you'll hear. We discussed the pervasive failure of institutional nerve in the face of all of this social justice activism, how our politics has acquired a religious fervor of late, some of the cultural risks of remote work, how to keep activists out of one's company, antitrust regulations for big tech, how social media might be improved, ProPublica's recent disclosure of the tax avoidance schemes of the richest Americans, the prospect of implementing a wealth tax, and other topics. Anyway, a very timely conversation and a counterpoint to some recent podcasts where I focused on corporate cowardice. Here we have an example of corporate courage, which is certainly worth celebrating. And to that end, I bring you Jason Fried. I am here with Jason Freed. I'm sure there's a lot we could talk about. Uh, you have an interesting background, but we have a, a specific thing to talk about, which we'll get to in a second. But before we do, perhaps you can summarize what you've been up to the low these these many years. What how do you how do you describe what it is you do, and in particular the company you started, Basecamp? What does that do? What is the product for those who have not experienced it? Yeah, sure. So back in 1999, I started a business set called 37 Signals. We were originally a web design company. And over a number of years, we eventually morphed into doing software development. And um, we did that because the product that, or the, 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 the work we were doing was, was website design, and we needed a better way to manage that work. We were using email and shooting things back and forth, and things were getting lost. So we eventually made this thing for ourselves called, which, well, it wasn't called Basecamp yet, but it was a, like a project management tool, internal communication thing. And eventually, uh, we started using it with our clients and they liked it. And we said, you know, maybe we can turn this into a product. And we did that in like 2004. So since 2004, we've been making software. We've made a variety of different products over the years. This is software as a service stuff you'd use online. And, you know, we've always uh, been a very unusual company in that we've uh, done things our own way. We're fully independent. We're privately funded by ourselves and our customers. So we don't take outside money. And we've always sort of uh, taken a different path than the rest of the industry. We've pushed back pretty hard against a number of different things. But basically, we make two things. Basecamp, which is a project management and um, sort of internal collaboration tool for remote work. And also, we make something called Hey, which is H-E-Y.com, which is our newest product, which is an email service. And so those are the two things we make today. Mm -hmm. And how big a company is it, both in terms of employees and, and revenue or valuation, however you'd want to? consider its scale. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I can rail on a uh, rant on against valuations because I think they're kind of ridiculous. So I'll just give you a sense of um, 
we've we've historically been you know at our at our largest about sixty people, and um, since we're private, I don't disclose exact revenues, but we generate tens of millions of dollars in annual revenues and annual profits, um, and we've been profitable every year since mm-hmm. uh, we started the business in 1999. Nice, and you've also had a um, a fairly intentional consideration of culture and business philosophy. I mean, you, you've published several books about business, and you, you write for um, Inc., I believe, regularly. So it, maybe you can summarize how, you, how you've thought about business and business culture up until this moment. Yeah. Um, you know, we are an independent company, and I, I believe in, in independence and small businesses. And, and, and uh, you know, part of the reason why we haven't taken outside money is because we don't want to be beholden to someone else. Um, we want to do what we think is right. We want to try things. We want to experiment with things. And we've found that the only way to do that is to be independent. So I'll give you a sense of some of the things that are different about Basecamp. First of all, in our industry, which is the tech industry, people are used to overwork and just being driven really, really hard, 10, 12-hour days, all-nighters, weekends, the whole thing. We just expect an eight-hour day from people. Eight-hour day, 40-hour week, very standard, very mainstream, very old-school kind of kind of work environment in that way, which is just give us a good day, eight hours, that's plenty of time to do great work. And because of that, we require a certain degree of focus and attention to be put on, on that work, which is why we try to eliminate a number of distractions. For example, we don't really have meetings at Basecamp. You know, if people need to get together, it might be two or three people, but we don't have scheduled meetings. We don't have daily standups. We don't have a bunch of all hands. We don't have the type of culture that a lot of companies do, which people are just drowned by meetings constantly. They're mm. in them all day. And they're, they're chunking your day into smaller and smaller bits and no one has time to get work done because you've got only 15 minutes here or maybe an hour there before the next meeting. So we kind of stay away from that kind of stuff. We, um, we do four-day weeks in the summer. So uh, basically May through September, we only do four-day weeks, which is a 32-hour week, um, which is really unusual. We've worked remotely for about 20 years. You know, we, we have a very different approach. And our, our general approach is let's focus on the stuff that matters. Let's get rid of the things that don't. Let's put in a good day's work. And then let's have a life, um, which is, again, very weird in the mm-hmm. tech world, which is not about life. It's about work all the time. And we're not about that. So there's a bunch of other things as well. But those are some of the fundamental things that we've done um, to, to make this place a different place. Mm. So you guys must have weathered COVID better than many other companies. You were already fully distributed? We, we're pretty much. So we've had an office in Chicago for the past 10 or so years, but uh, most of our employees are, are, are all over the place, so outside of Chicago. So we have people in the U.S. and Canada and Europe, Hong Kong and Australia. And um, we've always been remote. Even the local people who lived in Chicago, they may have come into the office once or twice a week. So we've always essentially worked as if we were a remote company. And I think we did weather it pretty well because we were used to it. We didn't have to, you know, scramble to figure this stuff out. But at the same time, I think it hurt us because we'd always um, leaned on each other a couple weeks a year. So we would fly everybody into Chicago twice a year for about a week to have these in-person meetups where we got to share Mm -hmm. a meal and and hang out and have some, you know, FaceTime and just have some social interactions, which we hadn't been able to do for the past year because of COVID. And the last time we did, I think was fall of uh, 2019. So it had been a while. And I think it was a problem because, and by the way, everyone's going through this as well. So this isn't unique to us, but I think we realized how important it was or it is to see each other at least occasionally and remind ourselves that we're all human. 
we're all soft bodied you know, <laughs> organisms here and uh, we have feelings, we have emotions and we're, we're complicated. And I think we lost a little bit of that through COVID. And I think I know a lot of people have. It's been a very difficult year for a lot of companies, obviously, a lot of people. Okay. So what happened? I mean, now we have a picture of you as an employer that sounds uh, quite domineering and, and depressive. And I can imagine that your workforce is looking for every opportunity to uh, revolt. Uh, so <laughs> what, what has brought us together for this podcast? Well, it's about, been about almost two months now. In mid-April, we announced a policy change that uh, basically said, you know, we're not going to start talking, or we're not going to continue to talk politics at work. I'd say over the past few years, probably starting in, you know, 2016, as, as a lot of things started in 2016 and, and through the 2020 election and, and beyond now, politics has invaded every aspect of life, obviously, and it's become incredibly contentious. And it was, it was sort of leaking into our day-to-day too often. Um, not every day, but enough. And we've been at this kind of low simmer for a while where we sort of felt like it was just part of life at work. But it started to get more and more concentrated and the boil began to, to, to heat up. And um, we were having discussions in the company that were company-wide. So, you know, between 50 and 60 people were participating in these conversations or at least receiving the notifications. They mm-hmm. weren't all participating. Where things started just to go off the rails in a way that felt very nonproductive and unhealthy. And when I say nonproductive, I don't mean like measuring productivity. I just mean like the, this is not the kind of general mind, mind space we should be in at work. We shouldn't be debating the, the most complicated issues of the day. I mean, these topics are hard enough to discuss, period. Professionals have a hard time discussing this stuff. And, you know, to think that all we have to do is mix work in there, and that'll be the antidote, and work will make it better. I mean, it's just the opposite. Work makes it incredibly hard to have conversations like this. And so we just decided, when I say we, I mean, David and I, we're the two owners of the business. We decided that we were going to not have political discussions inside Basecamp any longer. Now, to be clear, let me just clarify a couple of things. So when I say inside Basecamp, Basecamp is the name of the company, but also the name of our product. So when I mm-hmm. say inside Basecamp, I mean in Basecamp, the product, where we do our work, which is where we do all of our work. We just don't want political conversations leaking into that. If you want to set up a Signal account, a group, like WhatsApp, whatever you want to do, a Discord thing to talk about that during the day, that's fine. But we can't have this in front of everybody whenever at random times. Now, we're also quite political as an organization in a different way in that we are very outspoken about things that involve our, our work. So we're very much in favor of antitrust regulations against big tech. We're very much in favor of more privacy regulations because we think that uh, big tech is just basically in everyone's face all the time, in everyone's business all the time. It's unhealthy. So we push against that. We've gotten into some public, very public battles with Apple about the App Store and, and, and their rules. So we are still going to be involved in political discussions that directly touch the edges of our work, but that's the limit of what we're comfortable doing. And so we made that declaration along with a few others, and things kind of went sideways, let's say. Um, we had about, at the end of, at the, end of the, the period of time where this was sort of a topic, we, we had about 20, a little bit over 20 people leave the company. So that's, that's a third of your workforce. Basically, yeah. And a couple other things to, to share here, which is that we offered an extremely generous severance package, six months severance for anyone who'd been here for more than a few years and three months or yeah, three months if you've only been here for a few. And some people took us up on that outside of the policy changes. They were just ready to go anyway. 
and they were looking for a new opportunity, and this was a good chance for them to do that. That said, the majority of people probably left because of the policy change that we made. So it was a, it was a very difficult time, a uh, sad time. And uh, I know a lot of people were sad, and it was challenging, a very challenging, kind of an existential moment for us as a company of, of roughly 60 to have a third leave. But we survived it, and uh, we're, we're here to grow again. And, um, but it was, it was a very interesting process, and I learned a whole lot about group dynamics and um, especially social media pressure and sort of the toxicity, of course, that we all know is there. But then when you're part of it and you see it coming directed at you, it's a whole other thing. And that was, a, that was an eye-opener, even though mm. I knew it. But to feel it is different. And um, it was challenging. So here we are. But uh, we made the decision. We think it's still the right call. Um, we think this decision is right. And we think that we're early on it. We have a yeah. history of being early. You know, we've been working remotely for a long time before other companies had done it. 40 work weeks is still, of course, not a thing most companies would do. We pushed very hard against venture capital. Um, and you're starting to see a, more of a bootstrap revolution happening right now. We've been preaching this for 20 years. There's a number of other things that we've done ahead of the pack. And I think that sometimes when you're early, it hurts even more. You got to put your neck out there and give something a try. But to me, this is an extension of the experiment, which is Basecamp. And we feel almost a moral obligation to, to live up to our independence and to do things that other people wouldn't give us permission to do. That is why I'm an entrepreneur, to do things that I wouldn't have permission to do otherwise. Because if you're just going to do what someone's going to tell you to do, you might as well go get a job, is how, kind of how I look at mm. it. So we take that seriously, and we give things a shot, and we try things out, and we see what happens. And, and time always tells, and we'll see, we'll look back on this you know, a year from now or two and see how it all played out. So things must have been heating up prior to your change of policy, right? So Because you, you kind of ripped the Band-Aid off with the policy change. But prior to that, were, were, were there signs that things were um, becoming dysfunctional at the company, or was it really at a, a very low simmer and you just decided this, was, this is just something that needed to be uh, corrected going forward, and then things only got chaotic after you announced the new policy? I think it's, it had been ramping up. Now, I have an organizational view that's different than some people who only see part of the organization. I, I'm the CEO. I, I, I'm part of all the discussions. I see what's going on. I'm, I'm part of other discussions that aren't public inside the company. And there was a, a ramp up. Now, I'm only willing to talk about the things that have been made public because everything else is a private internal conversation, of course. But mm -hmm. the thing that ultimately sort of ripped it all off, I think, was this, this conversation that was had about, and this has all been made public. Uh, it leaked. So here it is. There was a list of names that had been kept by some people in the company, sort of, you would call them, well, they were, they were considered to be funny sounding names. Now, this was a serious lapse of judgment. And when I say names, these are customer names that have, had come in via, via customer service emails. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a terrible lapse of judgment. And I feel responsible too. I knew about this list about a decade ago when it first began. And uh, I sort of thought it was put away at some point, but apparently it continued. And um, it was, it was growing. It hadn't been updated for many, many years, but it existed and it had been moved between systems, um, like upgraded, moved between different file services and whatnot. Anyway, at some point, an employee apologized for being part of that, of that list. And I thought that apology was very fair and, and, and great. But in addition to that apology, there was a, a chart that was posted along with the apology, which is actually the um, ADL uh, pyramid of hate. I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with that yeah. pyramid. 
where at the bottom you have, I think, microaggressions, and it kind of goes up three or four levels. To the top, it's genocide. And the suggestion ultimately was that like, if we are going to be making fun of people's names, which again was a major mistake, that we could end up literally like genocidal, uh, which is just such an, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obviously what it is. It doesn't make any sense. I think you might need to take some VC money to bring that project to scale. <laughs> we would need some more people. <laughs> That's true. That might be one reason to do it, right? So, but, but you know, the thing is that was so interesting about it was that some people thought that that was just simply okay. And I, I could not wrap my head around how we got to a place where we were talking about genocide at work. And the subject of the genocide was that we were potentially going in that direction if we were willing to make fun of people's names, which again was wrong. And the thing that's so interesting to me is that there's got to be a time and a place where you can say, we screwed up and it, we're sorry, and it can end there. But in some cases, it can't end there unless you come to a full account of all the horrors that it could also end up leading to. And I just felt, and, and David and I both looked at that and said, this has to be the end of that because we can't normalize, literally normalize discussions about genocide that we were potentially you know, <laughs> going to commit right mm -hmm. in, inside our company. This is just so out of proportion. And that was ultimately what it was. But, but there had been a boil. And, and this was sort of the moment where like, we can't, we can't let this continue. This mm. just doesn't make any sense. Would I be right in guessing that the person who alleged that you were on the, uh, the ramp to genocide is also a person who took the buyout when you offered it? Yes. Well, this, obviously, this is not just a problem for Basecamp, and that's why we're having this conversation, but it, it's become system-wide in media and tech and Hollywood, and it's just, it truly is ubiquitous, and that's what's so alarming to many of us, that there's a fringe phenomenon, which should be a fringe phenomenon on the left, that is capturing our institutions, and, you know, the K-12 through education now to a remarkable degree. I mean, I, I tend to describe what we're witnessing under the guise of social justice politics as a kind of moral panic. And I mean, this is not to say that racism and sexism and transphobia aren't problems anywhere. I think they clearly are, but they're not problems everywhere. And they're being treated as such by a large group of activists and cult leaders, frankly, I mean, people like Ibram X. Kendi, who are pushing a politics on the rest of the country that resembles nothing so much as mental illness. And because they enjoy this asymmetrical advantage with respect to social stigma, because being accused of racism in particular is so destructive to a person's reputation, these activists are successfully silencing and cowing most good people. And the people who do have the courage to call bullshit on all this dishonesty and bullying can be made to seem like they're joining the ranks of bad people who are really racist and sexist and transphobic. So now we have the spectacle of some of the least racist people and institutions on earth issuing abject apologies, the kinds of apologies that would seem appropriate in an exit interview from the Ku Klux Klan, just rending themselves over their past sins. And I mean, this is something that recently happened at you may have heard about this at uh, Juilliard, right? And, and it's 
drama department in particular, just tore itself apart over its alleged racism, that the drama department at Juilliard is 50% black. It's circulating crazed lists of demands to itself, talking about how black bodies are being subjected to violence under this appallingly racist regime at Juilliard. And it, so this has become the, like the Salem witch trials. And I, mean, I remain convinced that this fever will break at some point and that sane people will step forward and acknowledge that while there's still a lot of work to do to address specific inequalities in our society, we have made tremendous progress. I mean, there is, in fact, less racism and sexism and transphobia at this moment in America, and in particular in our institutions, than there has ever been anywhere on earth. And not to acknowledge that is becoming increasingly perverse, even while you, uh, you know, are right to want to work to resolve remaining inequalities. So, I mean, so what you've done here, I think, is you know, if it hasn't been celebrated sufficiently yet, it will one day be. Because, I mean, the, the lack of institutional courage we're seeing in the most profitable companies that have ever existed. I mean, a company like Apple, right, which is just showing every sign of capitulating the moment a, a Twitter thread gets started. It's really shocking and totally dysfunctional. How do you view the landscape of tech in particular? I mean, how how many? Uh, there, there are a few other companies who have done more or less what you've done. I mean, I'm thinking of Coinbase and Shopify. I think in the case of Coinbase, I certainly didn't hear they paid the same kind of price you did in terms of employees leaving. I mean, perhaps they didn't offer the same kind of generous exit package. But how do you view your tech colleagues and their commitment or lack thereof to holding the line here? Yeah. Well, there's a few things going on. First of all, there does appear to be a tinge of sort of a religious fervor of, about this. And, yeah. you know, I will say everybody who's ever worked here, I think, is a wonderful person and they have a great heart and their intentions are good. I, I, don't, I don't wish ill will on anybody. And I, I think that, you know, people are making their own personal decisions and I'm, I'm fine with the decisions people make. The problem, though, is that when the, the alternative is that, you know, the, the, the takes are so uncharitable that if you stick around here, I mean, there was some threats like to people who work here still. Um, and I'm very, very appreciative of the people who stayed and lived through this because some of them were being threatened terribly that, you know, they were racist and they are white supremacists and that they are fascist or part of a fascist regime. It's like the most uncharitable possible takes on people. When it, when it defaults to that, mm. that's a problem. That is like they're heretics, basically. And that that sits with me. That does not sit well with me at all. <laughs> to go straight there just does not make sense. And, and it's funny, like I'm Jewish. I was called a Nazi. I was <laughs> called a white supremacist. Of course, white supremacists want me dead, too. Like to, to even have a suggestion that I, I would side with that is just to be completely blinded to the realities of what that is. Anyway, that's what, what happened is, is that Twitter, the other thing I've, I've kind of noticed here, and by the way, I've been off Twitter for about two months. I was off it about a week prior to, to this all going down. And I'm, I'm glad that I, I was because my sanity was, was maintained to some degree during this, this process. But I was shown screenshots of what was going on on Twitter. And the amount of shame and bullying directed at our employees and that people who work here was just horrifying. And 
What's interesting is that I think part of the reason why, for example, Coinbase, I think they lost something like 5% of their workforce, something like that. We lost about 30 is that we have a smaller surface area. We have mm -hmm. 60 people. And we had a page up at basecamp.com slash team, which we've since taken down, where everyone's name was there and people's Twitter handles were there if they were on Twitter. And it was very easy to throw a mob at that small degree of surface area mm -hmm. and literally shame the hell out of people. It's just, it's, you know, Twitter, and, you know, look, I, I've, I've been on Twitter for years, got a few hundred thousand followers. I've been very active on Twitter. And it, it, Twitter is a, a double-edged sword, and I've just come to realize that it's actually a, a terribly toxic soup of complaints and, and attacks, and uh, I don't want to soak my mind in that anymore, so I'm, I'm mm. off of it. But I think Twitter plays a huge role in this, and it's one of the reasons why so many companies are afraid, because you get a very, very vocal group grandstanding and throwing bombs at individuals, I mean, who's going to stand up to that? And I don't blame any of our employees who decided they just couldn't take that. And they decided they had to leave too, because they didn't want to be part of that. I can understand that. I really, truly can. I, that, that pressure must be enormous. And there was moments that I wanted to quit. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Hmm. I don't want to be subject to this. How did this happen? So I, I, get, I get the pressures, but I think that's part of what's going on. If there was no Twitter, I think things would actually be quite a bit different. Now, Twitter is also wonderful. We've managed to make serious inroads against some stuff that Apple's doing, not around this, but around the App Store, by, by marshalling uh, an audience on Twitter and getting people to understand our point of view and our take. And Twitter's, Twitter's wonderful in those ways too, but man, it's such a tricky place. And I think that's the main thing that's going on, is that because Twitter is so public and because there's no identity verification on Twitter, you have no idea who... Yeah is forming yeah. the mob, is forming the group. You just don't know. And so therefore, like, there are reasonable, good people on there who do have a different point of view, fine, who want to who throw some, some bombs, that's fine. But there could be thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of fake accounts. You have no idea what, what's going on on there. And they can destroy people. And that's really sad. So I understand the self-preservation, uh, what it must take at that level to sacrifice somebody or something to say, we're just going to, like, I can't handle this anymore in public, so we're just going to do this thing to make that go away. I, I, I get where that comes from. Yeah, we, ha we have a, a massive coordination problem here because it, this problem could go away instantly if enough people just stepped forward together. But because it's difficult to orchestrate that and because the penalty for any one person summoning too much courage can be extraordinary, uh, you have people just wanting to to avoid the problem altogether. It becomes rational not to be the one to open your big mouth because you know so much ire and dishonesty is going to be targeted in your direction. And uh, this problem, you know, strangely doesn't go away when you become uh, incredibly successful and wealthy. I mean, this is you know you you can literally meet billionaires who have no more courage than, you know, your lowliest employee, because they're the first to think, well, you know, what's the upside for me? You know, like, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't want to complicate my life. And in addition, I've got thousands of people and, and in some cases, hundreds of companies. I mean, I was talking to a, you know, famous venture capitalist who, you know, shares all of my opinions, apparently, on this subject. And when I asked him why he wouldn't 
talk about this publicly, he said, uh, you know, and this is admittedly, this can be a totally altruistic motive, you know, at least in his head. Uh, he said, just too many people and companies depend on me. You know, I've got hundreds of companies and, and people whose whole livelihoods are, are wrapped up in, you know, the next thing I do or don't do on some level. And, you know, why would I want to complicate everyone's life by opening my big mouth on this topic? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, part of that is, is uh, when you have so many interests that are intertwined and dependent upon one another, you, you, you have to, you know, worry about what the stakeholders might say. And maybe your company's going to go IPO, you know, in a year and you got to worry about that. And there's a lot of things to worry about the more, the, the deeper uh, your tentacles go and, and the more dependent you are upon this funding source or, or that eventual exit or whatever it might be, which is one of the reasons why we felt like we could take this on and try it. We are, as I mentioned earlier, you know, independent. We don't have a board. We don't have investors. If not us, who? Mm. And look, you know, we even discussed, David and I, my business partner, I discussed like, this could take the company down. Like this literally could. And you know what? We're okay with that if that was to happen. We've been in business for 22 years. Um, this is more of a, I guess, a stoic practice perhaps, but just kind of the negative visualization. Like the worst thing that can happen here is we can, we could, the business could go out of business and that would suck. It really would. It'd be painful and terrible. And this, I put my life's work into this. I'm 47, like half of my life, basically. And the full majority of my, of my professional life has been in this. I would hate for this to go away. I love this place. I love the people who work here. The products we make are fantastic. We have wonderful customers. We've done a lot for the industry. We care a lot. We give a lot back. We're very altruistic when it comes to the work that we do. We've open sourced tons of software, We've written a bunch of books. We're out there and very vocal and willing to say things that we think need to be said. But if that all went away, we, we would be okay with that. Mm. I mean, I don't want it to be that, but we had to come to that. And I can understand how other people who have far more dependencies. And by the way, the other thing is, if you've worked at Basecamp, you can work anywhere. So you know, anyone here who has a job could get another job somewhere else if that happened. I'd feel terrible about it, but if that happened, that would happen. And I mean, we're, we're very grateful that that didn't happen and that we have a wonderful crew here and we've already been hiring and people are excited to work here more than ever in some cases because they really want a place that's a refuge from what's going on in the world right now. They want a place where they can hone their craft and focus on the work. Of course, have social conversations with colleagues, of course, but a place where they aren't constantly having to address or decide whether or not they want to wade in or stay out of the biggest topics of our time, they want a place where they can just kind of do the work. And so, so that's been wonderful to see the response. And the company is great. And we, it didn't hurt the business. We had a few extra cancellations that one week. But other than that, everything's back to normal. So that was reassuring, too, that this is actually, I think our position is actually quite mainstream. Yeah, it, It's hard in the tech world to feel that. Because when you're surrounded by it, um, and you're, especially if you spend time on Twitter, it feels like the whole world is against you at this moment. But you know, the more I talk to people and the more people I've heard from, I received hundreds of emails from folks, and I've talked to a lot of people and other CEOs and leaders and business owners and other employees at other companies and, and just vendors that we work with. And they're like, politics at work? That's crazy. Why would we ever talk politics at work? We don't talk politics at work. It's also a bit of an American thing. Since we have employees all over the world, um, we did lose a few uh, great employees in, in Europe. But for the most part, a lot of people were just surprised that, this, that it, the reaction was what it was. 
and um, anyway, it, it, it comforts me to, to know that this is actually a pretty mainstream point of view, which is that politics and religion, I mean, there's other things you just wouldn't talk about at work. People know not to talk about religion. And since politics has essentially become a religion these mm-hmm. days, it feels like it fits in that category. In the same way that if you were in an open office and you were to, you know, everyone's working in an office and someone just grabbed a podium and started to proselytize and, and talk about their points of view on religion or, or politics and that you should come this way or else, everyone would say like, hey, shut up. Like, what are you doing? Like, what, this is totally inappropriate. But given the fact that we're, we use remote working tools like Basecamp and other companies use things like Slack and, and whatever else you use, it becomes actually, you lose the, the, the attachment to the physical pushback of some of these things. It's the same way, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's the same way, it's the same reason why software often gets worse over time. It's because there's no physical edges pushing back on it. If you have like a physical object, if you're thinking about uh, industrial design, some sort so, a can of soda or something, it's going to have to be a certain shape, a certain size, made of a certain material. There's just some obvious physical limits to what something can be. Software, however, can be anything. And that's why it often becomes anything and becomes overwrought with more features and slows down and gets confusing over time. And I think the same thing is true right now with remote work, which is that, and by the way, I'm a huge proponent of it, but that you can throw things into this place that you normally wouldn't if you were in person. And, and that begins to erode the, the sort of the, the wall between what's reasonable and what isn't, given the environment and the organization that you're in. So mm-hmm. I think that's part of it too. And I almost don't blame people for falling into that because it's sort of a natural depression. Uh, I don't mean depression. I mean like yeah. a depression in the land, you yeah. know? Yeah, an yeah. attractor. Just, yeah. It happens. I get it. But anyway, we, had to, we, had to, we felt like we had to, to basically fill that depression in um, so people wouldn't keep falling into it and we didn't normalize it. And, and here we are. Mm. Yeah, there, there's something insidious about what gets done with silence in software and on social media too, because you know silence gets read as assent for better and worse, and mostly worse, and and then you you can get attacked for your silence. Like I, I notice you haven't commented on X, you know that must mean you're a a fascist. Yeah, and then you know what's widely supporting this problem is is that people's silence is being counted as as acquiescence to this hysteria right i mean so you know, the silence of people at every level you know including at the top is just giving space to all of these um i mean again it, it does have a, a quasi religious shape to it i mean there's you know blasphemy tests and kind of formal scapegoating of people i mean you know, you know reputational witch burnings uh, and all of it is so dishonest in most cases that it it's really toxic and affecting almost everything. That was one of the other things, if I, if I could jump in on yeah. that, is, is this is one of the other things that, that started happening is I began to hear from a number of employees who, who over the past number of months felt very uncomfortable because they have their own personal opinions, even in support of some of these things, but they chose just not to share them because, you know, people sometimes will say that's privilege. I think it's just your own personal opinions are your own right. You don't need to share what's on your mind with everybody. Your cause doesn't have to pull an opinion out of me at any time. And some people just choose not to want to talk about these things. It's also not on everybody's mind equally. You know, some people don't have time to think these things through, and they're not even sure where they stand. You know, hmm. people are nuanced here. People are complicated, and these are really complicated issues. And, you know, 
you shouldn't have to wonder if staying out of it means that you're complicit. Right. And, and that the, the, the non-charitable or the uncharitable assumption is, is that if you don't say something and you don't stand up for something, that you, then you are against it. And not only are you against it, but the against equals you're a racist, you're a white supremacist. I mean, the, the reach is just, it's so vast, so quickly. And also then if you want to kind of wade into it, because you, you maybe do want to participate, but you say the wrong thing, you don't necessarily know how to say it, and everyone's definition is a little bit different. You know, you, you can be attacked for, you know, a, a microaggression or whatever it might be. And, and then you're like, you just, you don't know where to go. And I feel like what ended up happening at base camp was that the self-esteem of the organization felt like it was being battered, that, that we, we didn't, it, people were afraid to talk. They didn't know how they were being perceived. They, they, there was assumptions about what was being said and what side you were on. There were factions were being formed. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to have a, a detailed debate with somebody or a, a political debate with someone when you know you can, at the end, clap your hands and go home. The problem with, with mixing this with work is that you, you have this debate or you stay in it or you stay out of it. And staying out of it is communication as well. Again, mm-hmm. like you said, it could be perceived as, as, as acquiescence or whatever it might be. And the, but then you gotta, you got to work with people who think you're a monster. You know, it's like, yeah. how, do you, how do you do that? This is just, it's unfair. It's literally unfair to, to, to have that going on. And so, you know, again, like this atmosphere just does not feel conducive to a, to a supportive place where we can actually do the work that we're here to do. And the other thing is that we're, we're a small business. We, we can't really affect global change on any of these points anyway. I mean, it's one thing perhaps to try to get a huge multinational corporation to, to make some moves, to make something better if, if you want to go in that direction. Like I can almost understand the desire for that. We, we just don't have that, that presence. We can't make that. We can't press into the world in that way. We can press into our world, which is the tech world. We can press into, into antitrust stuff. We can press into software development. We can press into leadership and management styles and and advocate for sane work hours and advocate for really fair pay and advocate for reduced hours and advocate for remote work and advocate for a lot of autonomy and, 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 and agency inside organizations and all these things. That's our realm. That's our, our sphere of influence. And we can stick to that and feel, we should be able to stick to that and feel wonderful about our contributions to the world without feeling like we need to just take everything on that could ever be wrong. Mm. And that's how it began to feel. And maybe not to everybody, and I, I can appreciate how some people go, are probably listening to this going, Jason, it wasn't like that. Well, it was where I, where I sit in the organization, which is looking at the whole place and how we're doing and how we're feeling and the general sense. And I hear from all sorts of different employees. So as CEO, I have to make some of these difficult decisions about what is this place like to work at? And um, this was one of those decisions. I really don't think anyone could challenge your lived experience as CEO, Jason. You're on, you're on firm ground there. I, I tried it. Yeah, this is the. Pr- <laughs> so, uh, ha- have you changed anything about your hiring practices, or I mean, what what advice have you given yourself here going forward, and what advice would you give to other tech leaders? Yeah, well, we've put a few job ads out there so far, and we're getting wonderful people applying, and so we haven't changed the practices. I think it's it's pretty clear that you know we want to make sure that we're focused on the work here, and that. This is a place where you can come and do great work and hopefully the best work of your career and that we want to create an environment where that's possible. And I think that we've shown over 22 years that this is a wonderful place to be. 
for those reasons. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, up until just recently, I think close to half of our company had been with us for more than seven years, hmm. which is extraordinarily long in this industry. I think the average tenure at most tech companies is something like 18 months or two years. And I think we had 20 some odd percent that were over 10 years here. So obviously, I'm bragging a bit, which is not something I'm comfortable with doing so much. But I will say that we have, we've built a wonderful company, a place where people can do great work with great people. And even the people who left are great people. I feel like everyone's a great person here. We have wonderful benefits and wonderful pay and a wonderful environment. And we don't screw people over with meetings all day. And we don't take people's time. We don't divert people's attention. So I think all of those things are one of the reasons why we typically get hundreds or thousands of applications whenever we put a job up. And that's continuing as we've seen mm -hmm. already with the job ads we put up. So I don't think we have to say anything else. We just have to make it clear where we stand. I mean, you, you could be relying on the fact that this hiccup got so much press that anyone seeking a job with you now knows, you know, what the rules are. But, you know, five years from now, if you couldn't really assume that, would you be asking any further questions or, or telling people just what the policy is up front as they kind of filter against woke or any other style of activism coming into the company? Yeah, we haven't really discussed that, like what to do about that. I, I would just say that, first of all, politically, I don't, I don't care where you stand. I don't care you know, where you stand religiously. I don't care about any of these things. They're none of my business. Like right. That's how I look at them, right? They're completely none of my business. So you can come in with any point of view you want. But we have a collective you know, society here, and we're deciding to, to focus on the work and be essentially non-political outside of our, you know, our, our immediate, the immediate things that we touch. So I don't know what that language might look like. I know Coinbase has said mission-focused. That's their language. I'm not, I don't like mission-purpose. Not, that's not my language. So I don't know what we're going to say at some point. So far, we don't have to say anything. But I think, yeah, at some point, it would probably make sense to come up with something like that. But we tend not to get ahead of ourselves on these mm -hmm. things. Right now, we're attracting wonderful people, hired some great people already. And um, you know, right now, everybody understands um, the advantage to working at Basecamp. Can you really state it that categorically? Because you know, you know I'm also hiring. You know, I'm, I have my own uh, ventures. And you know, I, I would not be eager to hire a white supremacist say, right? I mean, if, if you're a neo-Nazi and you're applying to, you know, you know what, however good a software engineer you might be, uh, if you're applying for a job at waking up and those are your political views, well, we're obviously not interested. And I would extend the same judgment to the other side of the continuum. I mean, if you're so far to the left that you think I'm a racist for saying what I just said on this podcast, uh, you know, I'm also not interested in working with you. Uh, you know, how to communicate that, I mean, in, in my case, I probably don't need to communicate that explicitly <laughs> because people are aware of, of what I'm up to on, on the microphone. But um, I'm just wondering if, you know, if you're a CEO of another company and you basically see the world that way, where you, ju you just don't want extremists and extremist activists in your company, you know, because they, they are... Uh, a species of religious fanatic, and uh, you know the are the laws against discrimination on the basis of religion. Notwithstanding, I'm not going to hire jihadists. I'm not. There's a lot, a lot of people I'm not going to hire based on their cockamamie beliefs. So the question is how to select against those beliefs because they are so disruptive. 
Yeah. Is, is there generic advice to give to people? Gosh, I don't know yet. I think it's an interesting philosophical thing to talk about. I would say that, you know, for example, we have a, a use restrictions policy that, that I would kind of abide by for hiring as well. So for example, you can't threaten violence, you know, you can't use Basecamp to violate anybody's safety or anything like that, or perpetrate anything that would lead to violence, you know, child exploitation, abuse, hate speech, harassment, doxing, there's a bunch of things. So, and we talk, you know, of course, like white supremacy, no, not, not permitted here, not interested if that's your point of view. So I don't know. I mean, our, our use restrictions policy has grown over the years. And we're just trying to, you know, create a, a, a place where people feel comfortable. And I think that, yeah, I don't know where the limits are on that. I really, truly don't. And I don't know how you ask those questions. And I don't know how you get to those answers. I don't want to be the kind of person who looks at people's social media to decide whether or not I want to hire them. I don't like when companies mm-hmm. do that. I have a, it's tricky. It's really tricky. I, I, I've, I, you know, I know companies will, will, will hire other people. You know, there's background checks, of course, like you can do a background check on, on people, but there's extended background checks, which, which, you know, go into social media. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm very uncomfortable with, with that sort of thing. So I, I don't know. And, you know, the, the honest truth is I may be completely inequipped to answer that question. And I don't know what's going to happen and where we're going to go with this over time. I don't know yet, but it is, I can see your point. It's very important to figure this stuff out when you want to build a culture and build a company. And here's the thing about it, which is that, as I mentioned earlier, Basecamp is an experiment. And I'm all in favor of as many experiments as, as can happen, which is one of the reasons why you know, we, we advocate for small businesses and, and, and push back against big tech, which basically make it really difficult for a lot of people to start businesses these days and compete. I want more and more and more experiments to play out not violent ones, not hate-filled ones, of course. But different companies should be able to try different things and see where it all shakes out. We're all trying to figure this out as we go. I don't think anyone knows the answer to all these questions or how to get the answers to them. But they are answers worth exploring at some point if you feel like you need to. Another, another way to look at it could be you just see if it repeats itself or see if it doesn't. And if it does, then you deal with it again. You know, I... I We've, we've long had this, this thing at Basecamp basically called don't scar on the first cut. A lot of corporate policies are based on one thing going wrong once, and then they write a policy to prevent that thing from ever happening again, which is why terms of services are often really long, convoluted documents, and nobody mm-hmm. reads them because they're 30 pages long. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole host of these one cut, one scar policies. And we don't want to be that organization either. We want to be a fair organization. We want to give people leeway. No one's going to get fired if they, like even today, someone brings up something political, no one's going to get fired over that. We're just going to, hey, remember, we're not talking, like, we just want to be reasonable people here. And so part of it might be, we just put this policy in place. Let's see how it plays out over time. We're probably going to have to clarify it in a few areas. And we'll see how it shakes out. And if it begins to trend towards something that we're uncomfortable with again, we can make a decision based on the information we have at that time. Part of our management philosophy in general is, is not to plan. We, we're not into long-term planning. I have no idea where the company is going to be in five years or even two years from now or even a year. We <laughs> look at things literally six weeks at a time, which is a very weird thing in our industry, but I literally, we decide every six weeks where we're going to go next. So I, right now we're fine. We're good. We'll see what happens. And um, then we'll make decisions when we have the information, because the best information you have is in the moment 
It's not guessing what things are going to be like down the road. It's not assuming things are going to go in this direction. It's so you kind of see, you kind of guide, you do your best to keep things on course. And hopefully we can just kind of stay in that direction. But if it goes off course again, we'll make other changes. Mm. And by the way, it could come from far right. It's like, this isn't about left or right to me. I'm not a sides person. I, I don't, I don't believe in sides. I don't like the notion of sides. I don't like having to be defined by where I sit. I mean, for, ex- like, for example, I'm Jewish. Does that mean I'm 100% pro-Israel? Absolutely not. But in some circles, it would mean that. You know, Things, These are nuanced points. And I want to be a relatively nuanced company, but also have a pretty clear point of view about what kind of atmosphere we want here. Well, I hate to break it to you. On, on the uh, far right, it means you're not white. And on the far left, it means you're extra white. Yeah. So as a Jew, you're, you're going to get it from both sides I, and, and I along that. with you. Yeah. So uh, well, let's talk about big tech and antitrust. I mean, I guess antitrust is one aspect of the problem. I guess there's the, the other issue of just what the big social media platforms are doing to our conversation about everything mm-hmm. under the sun. Where do you perceive us to be in the, the health of our tech uh, economy? Well, let me take the social media thing first because it's such an easy tee up. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we're going to look back on this period of time like we did with sm- or like we do now with smoking. Mm-hmm. That social media is going to be cigarettes. Everyone's doing it. Everyone yeah. kind of had a sense that it was probably bad for you. I mean, how could smoke in your lungs be good for you? Even before the reports came, like, this can't be right, but it feels good. And yeah. at some point, we're going to look back and go, wow, we were all addicted horribly to this incredibly toxic thing. So I think that's what's going to happen. One, one wild moment that still sticks in my memory is smoking sections on airplanes. That was, yeah, that, can you believe that? That was just amazing I remember that. to live through, yeah. I remember you know, that. Transcontinental, you know, a flight to Europe with the smoking section, you know, the row across <laughs> from you or behind you. Yeah. Even smoking sections in restaurants, like, like the air doesn't waft across. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember going to airports, going to O'Hare. I'm from Chicago when I was much younger. And there's like a there's like a glass box smoking area, and it was like all yellowed. I mean, it's right. like this is not good. And social media, when I see people staring down at their phones and scrolling incessantly with their thumbs, I think of that yellowed plastic plexiglass. Like this is toxic. It just is toxic. So I think that's how we're going to look back on social media for a number of reasons. But as far as big tech goes, you know, my business partner David has been very, very vocal, far more than me. I mean, I share his points of view on this for the most part, but um, he's testified in front of uh, congressional committees in favor of antitrust regulations. These these big tech companies have gotten too big and too powerful. They're involved in too many things, and and you know, there's no choice in a lot of cases for for anybody. Like for us, we got into a a, a battle royale with uh, with Apple. We're a small little company. We had released. Um, are you part of the Epic Games thing, or is that a, a separate battle? We're not part of the lawsuit, but we're part of the uh, Coalition for App Fairness mm. thing that they're part of as well. Uh, we're, I think, founding members of that, if, if that's the category, if I'm speaking correctly on that. But um, we, you know, we put our app, hey, hey.com, um, into the App Store. It's an email, new email service. And uh, we were accepted initially, and then we were rejected on a further review of an updated version, a bug fix version. And basically, Apple said we have to pay them, you know, the 30% tax to be in the app store because we sell subscriptions. And um, we said, hell no, no, we are not doing this. And again, this is another situation where we're like, if this tanks the product, okay, we're going to stand on principle here because we can. 
and we will be okay. And so, so be it. Turns out we ended up being okay. Um, Apple and we eventually sort of discussed some some tweaks to the product to 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 make it work. And we don't pay Apple thirty percent because we're not selling subscriptions in the app. But the point was was that we had no choice almost at a point. And had we not had and getting back to Twitter, this is the double edged sword. Had we not had the audience that we have between me and David, we have something like seven hundred thousand Twitter followers, and we have a reputation in the industry of being outspoken. And had we not had that megaphone and that platform, that ability to push some change, we probably wouldn't have been able to do it. And we'd heard from hundreds of other small app developers who've been feeling literally abused and and neglected by Apple on these very things where Apple just said, no, you have to do this and that's it. And they had no power. So they had to either give in or whatever it was. And we just realized this is just totally unfair. This is not cool. So we push hard against that. So I'm very much against a lack of choice, uh, you know, Apple and, and Google, Google a little bit better, but not much. Mm. So j- just areas. so I understand, so, so you were selling subscriptions or you weren't? I mean, how, how was, what was the actual conflict over, hey? Yeah, so we, we are selling subscriptions on our site. Right. So if you go to hey.com, H-E-Y.com and s- sign up on the website, we have our own billing system and you, you, you pay a hundred bucks a year for the product. Apple thought that because we, or Apple's argument is because we sell subscriptions on our own website, that we need to also sell subscriptions mm. on the App Store. And we said, no, like we don't do that with Basecamp and, and z- zillions of other companies don't have to do that. Why? Hey. And there was a whole, you know, terms of use thing and all these debates back and forth. But we just basically said, no, we're, we're not going to do it. And we don't have to do it. All, all these other companies don't have to do it either. This is famously why Netflix doesn't sell subscriptions on, right. on the Netflix app, you know, right. and they have to use this crazy language to get around it because Apple doesn't really let you even tell your customers that there is a way to subscribe. There's all these things you can't do. You can't clearly communicate with your customers if you're on the app store around certain things. And so that was the issue. So has that been ironed out? Can other apps now just follow your example? No, not really. There's been some changes to the app store. What we had to do was offer a free variation on our product, as long as you offer a free alternative hmm. in the app store. Because basically, if you, if you downloaded, hey, you need to have a paying subscription to use the product. Right. So now that we, we offer a slightly free version in the app store, it's the same app, but there's a sign-up thing that gives you a free temporary email address. So that was the sort of the, the proposal we put forward, which they accepted. So we're okay there. But no, in general, this is still a very weird, blurry area. And um, Apple still, they, had, they changed the rules a little bit after this. I feel like we did nudge them a little bit, which was very satisfying, I must be honest. But they just came out with something else saying, like, if you make less than a million bucks a year, it's 15% or something like that instead of 30. But still, like, the thing is, is that in the competitive world of charging credit cards, it's like 2%. Because right. there's a lot of companies that will charge credit cards or charge a credit card. But in the Apple world, when you have to be in the App Store and there's no other way to sell subscriptions, if you want to reach Apple's customers, you have to pay 30%, which is just bonkers. It's, it's absurd. So, so, what, so anyway, what's we continue most, to fight. What's the most charitable argument from Apple's side here? They, they have to spend so much money to maintain this app ecosystem and vet apps so that you don't wind up putting something malicious on your phone that they, they need that kind of margin of revenue to do it effectively. I mean, that's why the, the App Store is better than the Google Play Store say, 
at least you know by their lights. Yeah, well, that's not true. I mean, you have kids. Hmm. I, I I have kids, and if you've seen some of the psychological warfare um, uh, in some of these games that kids download, they download a game, and there is just like all these tendencies to get them to pay for the game. There's just literally psychological warfare and abuse being being perpetrated against kids who are using some of these apps. And you're like, how is that protecting anybody? Mm-hmm. Like, how Apple, how are you protecting people? If that's, what, I, I, just the things I see, are, it's unbelievable, the things that are available in the app store. So they're not really guarding against all those things. I, I understand it takes money to, to run this business. Um, they're also a trillion dollar company. And, uh, you know, the notion that 30% is what they need of our revenues, of any company's revenues, they need to take a third of your revenues so they can, like the biggest company in the world needs a third of your revenues so, mm-hmm. so they can operate your app. Now, part of it too is that historically Apple's said, you know, hey, look, we're bringing you customers. This is not like, we're not just charging credit cards, we're bringing you customers and we're handling, you know, uh, the, the backend sales fulfillments and distribution and all these things. And I can almost appreciate that argument if you're brand new to the scene, but we've been in business for 20 years. We're bringing our own customers. Mm-hmm. We've, we've built up a reputation over the years to have, we have over 100,000 paying customers who use our products. And we've worked to earn their business and we continue to work to earn their business. And I don't need Apple to bring me any customers. They don't bring me any customers. Why do I have to pay for that benefit, which I'm not even receiving and don't even want, just to offer my own customers an app in your app store? If this is just about, and distribution, I'm happy to distribute software on our own site. You can even vet us and approve us like you already can with Mac software. You know, so th- this idea that the only way for, for someone to load an iOS you know, app on their phone, the only way for it to be safe and trusted and fair and vetted is for the, the vendor to pay Apple 30% so Apple can do its work. It's just, it's just not, mm-hmm. it's not realistic. It's not honest. And there's been some interesting emails that have been going back and forth or through discovery because of the Epic trial where you can see sort of some of the discussion about this and, and uh, where they think things were going to go over time, um, not being able to maintain this 30% margin in the whole thing. So anyway, I just, all I want is choice. As a, as a business right. owner, I simply want choice. If Apple wants to still charge 30% and you want, and Apple's stuff is incredible. I've been an Apple customer since 85. I, hold my, I owe my whole career to Apple. I got into computers because of, of, of a Mac and Mac SE back in 85 or 86 or whatever that was. Like, I love the company in a lot of ways. And if, if you think as an app developer that their package, their offering is worth 30%, great, pay it. They do make checkout simple. They make all these things simple. But I should also have the choice as a business owner not to have to sell in your store and pay your tax. Right. That's my take on it. Right. Right. So, um, what else specifically do you think poses an antitrust concern in big tech at this point? Well, I mean, you have situations at, at Amazon. And by the way, I just, just so everyone knows, I said earlier, we don't take outside investments and we don't. But Jeff Bezos actually owns a small piece of our company. So mm-hmm. we sold Jeff a small piece of the business back in 2006. He took a piece of my ownership and a piece of David's ownership, bought, not took, mm-hmm. bought a piece of my ownership and David's ownership. None of his money ever went into the business. So this was money for the founders to get off the table to take some risk off the table. Right. So he, he is a partial owner in the business. There's just three of us, me, David, and, and Jeff. Anyway, I'm still willing to, of course, speak very openly about Amazon. I mean, Amazon's, just their, their knowledge, their, their data collection, 
their ability to force vendors to do certain things in order to to reach their customers their their ability they're they're letting you know i've seen some situations where a small business has been selling in amazon's you know marketplace and they've been sort of forced to do this or forced to do that otherwise amazon will kick them off or essentially offer a clone of their product and there's a lot of nasty stuff going on around data collection and 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 forcing small businesses to acquiesce to certain demands in order to to reach their customers in a way that they're exerting unnecessary and, un, and unfair power. And there's a certain power dynamic there, which is just really pretty bad, I think, especially given the fact that Amazon is, you know, I think there's an antitrust uh, law around, you know, using data from one part of your business f- towards something else in your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know exactly what the statute is, but that basically is what's happening there. And, you know, you can follow the trial to get all the details on that. But there's that. And, th- and then also the other thing, though, that, that's even more nefarious, in my opinion, than some of this is actually the, the accumulation of personal data and, and targeted advertising, which I think ultimately will be illegal in its current form. I think the, the, the amount of data that, and Apple's making great roads into this, by the way, and I really support their, their drive into, into giving people control over their own information. The amount of information that's out there on every individual and the amount of advertising that's targeted at your own personal desires and, and, and you know, data based on things you don't even know you're giving up, to me, is, is highly unethical. And it's actually something that we don't do. So we don't advertise on Google. We don't advertise on Facebook. Mm-hmm. We don't advertise on any platform that uses personalized information to target you or retarget you. I think this is an unethical business practice. And Google, of course, is the, is the king there and Amazon is now getting into that business and 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 there's others. So very much against that type of of advertising and that business model in in general. Yeah, it's interesting cuz it's there, you know, if you have a digital product, there really is no alternative but Facebook right. and Instagram and and Google. And uh yeah, I've been torn over this for quite some time and we we have not done a ton of advertising, but we we certainly have done some for waking up I mean, the, the reason why I'm torn is, you know, I, I find it fairly odious to be giving money to Facebook, but I have no doubt about the utility of, of what I'm advertising, right? I mean, the benefit to people who use Waking Up is, I just have endless testimony about that. And given it's the only way, apart from the organic growth that we already have, to reach new people, you know, who otherwise just wouldn't know we exist at this point. It's um again, I've never been comfortable with it, but it's it's I we have not zeroed it out either. So I, I just um It's a dilemma, yeah. right? It's it is a dilemma. And and you know, we're we're fortunate in in a position where we don't have to do that, but we've also understandably taken a hit on our business. We're not growing like we could possibly grow if we were to spend millions of dollars in advertising on on these platforms. Mm. So we've just come to terms with the fact that we're not obsessed with growth, right. which is another thing that's different about Basecamp. I'm not interested in in rapid hockey stick style growth. I I don't have a desire to be the biggest or 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 to dominate an industry or to be a unicorn or to get back to your initial question about valuation. I don't know what our valuation is. I don't give a damn. Valuation has nothing to do with how I run my business. So you don't um, think you are likely to ever sell your business, or is that's not part of a um, any kind of plan for your economic future? I mean, you're not thinking of some kind of um, M&A opportunity? No. It could happen. We've been doing this for 22 years, and our, our aim is just to keep doing it until we can't do it any longer. So it could happen, but 
it's not what we're in it for. We're not in it to get out of it. Yeah. You know, th- there's this idea that every company should have an exit strategy. I, 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 I want an entry strategy and I want to stay. I want to stay around. You know, that's, I like this job. I like this company. I like the products that we make. I like working with the people who work here. Like, what else would I do? I really want right. to do this. So yeah, at some point that could happen. But and, and again, if and when it comes up, then we'll deal with valuation. But there's no reason for me to wonder, are we worth a billion? Are we worth 300 million? Or what are we worth? I don't know. I don't care. It's, a, it's an, an unnecessary exercise in my mind. And I think that Silicon Valley is obsessed, absolutely obsessed with ungodly sums of money and valuation that makes no sense to me. There are so mm. many companies that are valued so high they don't make any money. They're losing money hand over fist. It makes no sense to me. I'm an old school economics 101 kind of guy. Make more money than you spend. Don't get out over your skis. Don't do stupid things. Don't put your company at risk by spending more money than you have. Like If you can't afford it, don't do it, is my take. But right. getting back to the Facebook thing, we, we actually back in 2018 kind of officially became what we call a Facebook-free business, which we don't advertise on any Facebook properties, Instagram, Facebook, anything else that they have. And also the same is true for Google. We've done a few sort of trick ads on Google because (laughs) this is a whole other thing. We saw that a bunch of competitors were advertising on our keywords, on our brand, on our trademark. Mm -hmm. And it, it bugs me. I think that's also unethical, but that's fine. Someone's buying Basecamp as a keyword and, and, ad, and coming up before you in, in search results? Exactly. Right. And what's happening is, is that given the way Google has been trending in terms of their design, now there's like four or five you know, ads ahead of organic results. Now, and, and the ads have become less and less and less distinctive. They basically look exactly like organic results. And by the way, this is their business, so it's kind of their call in a sense, but also it's it's very manipulative if, if you look at the design changes over the last 10 years on how the ads look. It's very clear that it, ads are meant to look like organic results. Anyway, Google will sell a competitor your trademark unless you object. And we've objected over the years. And those objections sometimes are received and sometimes not. But they're not maintained in perpetuity. So you have to kind of keep, keep hmm. objecting. And so we, we, wrote, we wrote a little ad sort of screaming about that. And um, it was kind of a fun little ad. But what's interesting is that if you try to take an ad out on Google, like if you use Google's brand name Mm -hmm. in your ad, they will immediately be rejected as a trademark violation. So they know the value of trademarks. They have their own in their own database, of course, but they don't have any for everyone else's. So anyway, this whole thing is just, it's kind of crooked in my opinion. And we just try to stay away from that world and, and fight against it and speak out against it, which again is another area in which we, I think, are early. I, I think this target advertising is going to have to change. Yeah. And Apple, I love what Apple's doing. They're, they're, they're actually, they're, they have the power to change this industry and they're beginning to exert that. And I do appreciate that for sure. Back to social media for a second. Have you thought about how to build social media in a way that, would not only not be toxic, but better than benign? I mean, the kind of social media we would actually want to use and be wise to use? I haven't because I, I don't care um, about it in that way. But if I was to guess off the top of my head, the first thing I would think about is specifically Twitter, which is where I've spent the majority of my social media time. There needs to be some sort of, I don't know, identity verification of some sort. And you don't have to use your real name because some people might not want to do that. I get that. But I feel like that is missing. 
because you really don't know who you're even arguing with mm-hmm. or who's calling you what. And you know, the, the grandstanding and the ability just to, to speak up and have, have someone, have, have thousands of people support you, even if those aren't even people, you can, you can very quickly create a situation where you are your own army. And that is kind of frightening, especially when people's reputations and integrity are, are, are concerned. If it's like a stupid thing, you know, whatever. But like when you're trying to attack individuals, and I know Twitter's been trying to do better at this and protecting people, but it's hard. It's also incredibly hard. I, I, I would never want to be Jack Dorsey. It, you know, uh, I have a lot of respect for what he's tried to do, and he really has to tiptoe. It's very, very hard. These are massive platforms that have never existed in humanity before. No one really knows the right thing to do. And I want to give everybody credit for just trying to figure this stuff out. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, my, my interest would just be not to have it. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that there's some advantages around the, or some, some really, of course, look, if you're connecting with, with relatives, that's a different story. I think I would just get rid of the media part of it. Let's say that. Like, if it's just small social groups, people who opt in, who 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 you know, maybe the cert, maybe you can only have thirty followers. I'm just making up stuff off the top of my head. This might be a terrible idea, right. but so, some sort of limit to the power you might have and the number of people you might be able to reach. Like if you can reach your your small social group, maybe that's enough. If you just really want to share and keep in touch, because there's some real advantages to that, of course. But to do it all in public, I think it just ultimately elevates and and I should say not elevates, but maybe pulls out some of the worst tendencies of human beings, of which, of course, I'm one, and I understand those tendencies too. I have them as well. You know, we're all imperfect in that way, and I think that social media sort of eggs us on. It sort of is a lubricant to make us be bad in a lot of ways. And I think you could argue that it's great in some ways, but if you just look at the general trends and, and how much influence it has over politics and, and outcomes and, and people's lives... I don't think in some total, if you looked at it, you'd say this is, there's a net positive here. It's not. It simply is not. We have to be honest about that at some point and go, what are we going to do about that? And I don't really want to be involved in that conversation because I just don't care enough anymore. But um, it's a hard one. And I don't know who's going to mm-hmm. figure it out. Well, I kind of think that if you got rid of anonymity, or, or you, I guess you could have pseudonyms, but I guess the company itself would have a, a verified email for you. And if it were subscription-based, right, so you just, you couldn't have a bot army at any scale because it would just wouldn't make economic sense. And, you know, you got ads out of the business model. So you, there's no gaming of people's attention. You're not, you're not stoking the outrage machine so as to keep people hooked because that's not really the, the incentive for you as a business. I got to think that would clean up most of it. I would agree in, f- in principle, and we've long been fans of charging for things. You know, all of our products uh, have prices. And I think that just isn't very honest. You're entering into a very honest relationship with your customers when you say, I'm going to give you this service or this product, and you're going to pay me your money for it. There's, there's no other third party here that's mm. causing me to do one thing or the other. That said, I think what would have probably happened is that, by the way, it might solve the problem now, but I don't think social media would have gotten to the place where it is if it was pay. And I think what would have happened was because there's so much free money out there, free alternatives would have been subsidized as they basically have been, at least in the early days. And and free alternatives would pop up and the masses would go towards those. So yeah, Twitter and Facebook could go subscription only or something like that, or 
or maybe if you want to tweet more than 50 times a year, you have to pay. I don't know what it might be, right? There might, there's some thresholds here that we could play with. But I think because there's so much free money out there and, and there's so much being thrown around that just free alternatives would, would pop up because you don't have to make money in this world, in this industry for some bizarre reason. You can just sustain long enough and be supported long enough by somebody with deep pockets. And I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. And then advertising would take back over and you'd kind of get the same thing, rinse and repeat. Mm. But I do think there's probably limits to if you want to reach more than X number of people, perhaps you have to pay. If you want to have more than X number of followers, perhaps you have to pay. If you want to reply to people you don't follow, like there could be these things, but also could be very limiting. And then you get into the situation where what if someone can't afford it? One of the things I've always liked about your show is that or your, not your show, well, your show too, mm-hmm. by the way, but also your app is that if someone can't afford it and they email you, you'll, you'll gift it to them. I mean, that's a really reasonable thing to do and a really fair thing to do. And, you know, again, the thing is, is like, if Twitter did that sort of thing, you know, I don't know where it would end up. There's so many people mm-hmm. involved. You don't have, you don't have millions of people emailing you for free waking up, you know, app accounts. So maybe you do. Good for you if you do. <laughs> but I don't think you do. Have millions. It's a surprising number. It's really... Um, okay. I'm in an uncomfortable position with respect to this policy because, you know, I love the policy. I'm not even considering discontinuing it, but it's not a policy that I could actually recommend to other digital businesses because I think, I mean, like if, if Netflix had our policy, I think Netflix wouldn't exist, right? I mean, just it would be decimated. And it certainly never would have gotten to where it is now. And, you know, if, if Microsoft had our policy, if, if back in the day, if you just could, if you couldn't afford a copy of Office or Word, you, all you had to do was write an email and you get it for free, Microsoft would scarcely exist now. So, you know, it's, it's maybe, I mean, I got to think it'd be a shadow of its current self. And by implication, the, the Gates Foundation would be a shadow of its current self. It's, it's a little hard to be advocating a policy that is, um, it really does feel like a kind of one-off for me or, or, or I guess people who, uh, I'm sure someone has a similar business and a similar relationship to an audience, but it's, um, you know, even in my case, it's not without significant cost, but it's, uh, it does feel absolutely like the right policy for me. So, I'm, Well, this is back to my point about it's great that you can experiment, that you're one of the experimenters trying this and that you can exist and give it a shot and see what happens. I mean, also to the point about, you know, Microsoft and whatnot, like who knows, right, how this would play out. But I wouldn't be surprised if there are more pirated copies of Microsoft Office. Now, maybe it's been become harder to do that. But when I was growing up in the 90s, mm-hmm. like people were just trading software left and right for free. And it didn't seem to hurt anybody, even though I'm not an advocate of that. I mean, I, I respect the work that goes into things and you should pay for the things that you use 100%. But I, I think there's probably a lot of evidence to say that people who really want to use it for free will get it for free anyway, and it probably hasn't hurt these companies. That said, again, you should pay for what you use. I mean, a lot of work and a lot of people's careers are based on that. So anyway, but the point is that you get to experiment. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful thing. I love that you do it. I think the thing that you're doing is important, and that's one of the reasons why you might feel like you should do it. Yeah. And um, you're probably going to be all right at the end of the day. And I think it comes down to this, too. And this is me just offering an opinion more than anything, which is, do you need to squeeze every last penny out of every customer? And I'm not the kind of person who feels like that's a good business model. Um, There's a lot of companies in our industry that are all about charging and squeezing people. 
for every last penny because their aim is to grow the top line as much as they possibly can to IPO or be acquired by somebody else for, for billions of dollars. And that's all they care about. Right. And I, I think that's just such an unhealthy look at, at capitalism. I think you can be very profitable and also do some good and try some things and, and, and be fair to people who can't maybe afford something and, and, and be willing to leave money on the table. We leave a lot of money on the table and I'm very comfortable with that. It's, we make enough. We make more than enough. Right. frankly. And that's okay. That's cool with us. So we're, we're good with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that point, and maybe this is the, the final topic we touch, you know, I've been concerned for many years, I mean, certainly since the, the 2008 financial calamity about wealth inequality in this country and I mean, globally, but specifically within, within the U.S. And, you know, we're speaking now, I think about, I don't know, five days or a week after the uh, ProPublica disclosure of tax records from the 25 wealthiest people in the country. And uh, that's been a very interesting story to watch unfold. Uh, I guess a few surprises there, but you know, basically it's not terribly surprising. But the, the punchline is you have the, some of the wealthiest people in the world paying an effective tax rate of you know, 3% at the most generous. But you know, in the case of Warren Buffett, who is really the probably the lead here because he, he's been so vocal in offering the, the virtuous opinion that billionaires like him are not taxed enough. And meanwhile, he's, he's distinguished himself among greedy billionaires in paying the least amount of taxes. I think his effective tax rate was 0.1%. So it's obscene. It's an obvious problem, but it's not obvious what to do about it. Because when you actually try to game out what happens when you implement anything like a wealth tax, it's just easy to see how you create all kinds of unintended consequences that are bad for everybody. What's your perception of that story and, and what we might do to, to remedy the situation? Well, it's, it's obviously obscene. I mean, it's obscene that these folks don't pay, basically don't pay taxes. Mm -hmm. You might say 3%. That's basically zero. It's a rounding error for them. You know, it's, it's obscene. And you could argue that, well, they're just, you know, some people would argue they're just following the laws as they are, and that may be true. But of course, who wrote those laws? Basically, not directly they, but essentially, you know, uh, lobbyists working for incredibly wealthy people and wealthy corporations. And a lot of the stuff is hidden in, in, in terms of, of, uh, of equity and options and loans back on collateral and all this tricky, tricky, tricky accounting, all basically to say that they don't have to pay much in taxes. So I'm, I'm, of course, I'm not surprised by any of it. It's just disgusting. Mm. And, you know, all I can do, I have some other thoughts about the tax code in a second, but, but like all I can do is in my own realm, getting back to like, what can I do? Well, we try to pay our, our employees extremely fairly. We, we, we peg our salaries to 90 percentile of San Francisco rates, which is the highest market in our industry, even though we don't have people living there. Mm -hmm. Everybody who works at base camp gets paid at, 90, at the 90th percentile based on if they were living or as if they lived in San Francisco. And so, you know, that's one thing companies can do. We also have a minimum salary. So the minimum we're willing to pay anybody is $70,000. So we will not pay anyone less than $70,000 including in customer service roles, which a lot of other companies might be in the $35,000, $40,000 range. Like, we're not going to pay you 70. So we're, we're going to do our part there. But of course, it's, we're only affecting 50, 60 people, right? So that's not a big deal. 
all in, but we can do what we can with the people that we have. And, and I, I think that's important for companies to, to do their part there. I think if you look at the tax code, I mean, if you literally put it on a table, it might break the table in two. You know, it's, it's so thick and so big. And you might look at something that big and thick and go, well, that's because they've covered all of the possibilities. But really, it means that there's more holes in it. It has so much surface area. It's all written to, to, to make this exception or that exception for this case or for that case. And nobody understands it. And of course, like nothing's going to change until that is drastically simplified. And I don't have the intellectual capacity to know what that should be, but it certainly needs to be thinner. Yeah. It needs to be a thinner thing. That I know with fewer exceptions. And I, I don't know, is it going to change? Is this, is this report? I mean, I don't even know where they got the data. I know there's investigations going to that, which is another problem. Like who, who, who's provided the data? Even though we got the data, it's probably not a good thing that this stuff leaked at all. Right. But 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 what's what's going to happen? Who's going to take it on? I don't know. Is anything ever going to change? It doesn't seem like either party really cares uh, about this stuff. It's all to their advantage in many cases. That's where the money comes comes from to support you know the, the parties. It's it's you could just see how incestuous it is and how difficult of a problem it really is. I don't I don't think it's going to be solved. Actually, I think it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. I mean, I, I would I would love to see a solution, but it really is is hard to picture the the shape of what it would be because i mean income is such a tiny fraction of the accumulated wealth of the wealthiest people right even if they pay themselves a significant income what they require to fund their lifestyles no matter how lavish is again a rounding error with respect to how wealth is accumulating if you're jeff bezos or elon musk or warren buffett or any of the, the richest people in our society so taxing that at whatever rate is still going to be tiny. And in this, you know, what was so conspicuous about the disclosures in the, in the ProPublica article is that that's not even happening because they're not taking the income, right? They're, you know, they're living off of loans that, you know, they're paying whatever it is, uh, you know, two percentage points on their loans and living that way so as to avoid paying any income tax. But even if they were t drawing real incomes and, you know, in, in in real world terms, very generous incomes, it still wouldn't mean anything with respect to their accumulated wealth. But then if you demanded that they be taxed on the wealth itself, then you're talking about forcing CEOs to repeatedly sell part of their equity in their company, and you know that would do whatever it would do to the perception of the company if people didn't totally understand what was going on there. But it's also just, it, it, it becomes unsustainable when you're talking about the, the ups and downs of the market. I mean, a company can be valued one way this year and very differently next year. And if you've just taxed someone significantly based on the high valuation, what are you going to do when all that money appears to be lost on paper in the next year? So it's, it's a difficult problem to figure out how to implement it. And also just, if you had a wealth tax generally, the edge cases are going to be fairly brutal. You're going to have people who are very wealthy on paper because they, they're living in an expensive house or whatever, you know, that they just have been in for their whole lives, say, and they just happen to be on land that is worth a fortune because, you know, that's, that's where their house was 30 years ago. But they don't have anything like the income that would allow them to pay a wealth tax year, year after year. So it's, 
you know, again, I haven't spent much time thinking about this problem, and I'm, and I'm not an economist, but it just seems like the, whatever the solution is, it's, it's not altogether obvious. Well, I mean, yes, I have a couple thoughts on this. First of all, you know, regular people have to deal with this all the time, first of all. So, like, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the extremely ultra-rich who might have to sell some stuff sometimes. Hmm. Because, you know, I know, like, for example, in California, your, your, your property tax might be relatively fixed. But where I'm from in Chicago, it goes up. And uh, people are kicked out of their homes because they can't afford to pay the property taxes that are not standing still. They're going up as the, as the neighborhood gentrifies mm-hmm. or as property values go up. And so you've got a lot of old people who've been in a house for 20 or 30 years who, don't, who, who live on a fixed income who can't afford to live there anymore. And they have to move or they have to sell things to cover their property taxes. So people do have to deal with this. And poor people have to sell stuff all the time just to make things work. So I'm a little bit less sympathetic to that because... Mm-hmm. Other people have to deal with this all the time. What I think might ultimately happen, if I was to guess, I don't, okay, I don't think the tax code is going to change much. I just don't see the, the uh, incentive for either party to deal with this. What I think could happen, though, if I was to just sort of guess and have some fun with a guess, is that some ultra-rich person, call it Elon Musk or Bezos or whatever, starts to go, you know what? I'm going to pay the highest tax rate 39% or whatever it might be, or you know, minus some deductions or whatever, or I'm committing to paying at least 25% of my income to taxes because I think it's the right thing to do because everyone else has to do this, whatever that might be. And they might set a tone which other billionaires might feel socially pressured to follow in a similar way that was, I don't know if it was Gates or um, Buffett or both of them who decided to give, you know, give away all their wealth, yeah. whatever that yeah. um, thing is, right? where that began to turn the tide on really wealthy people deciding that maybe they should give away their money by the end of their life. And I, I just wonder if maybe, I know, I don't know who's the first one to do it, and if there'd be a second or third to follow, but I think that the social pressure created by one of them or two of them or a small coalition of them might essentially say, this is the right thing to do. We're not going to wait for the government to tell us to do it, but we're going to do it. Now, do I expect that to happen? Probably not. But I think that that would be a really interesting change. And I wouldn't be surprised if it did happen, even though I don't think Mm -hmm. it will. It just still wouldn't surprise me if someone stood up and did it. It's also to their advantage, frankly. I mean, like at some point, you just piss enough people off who don't have what you have and things change in in societies. It always has. Um, There's revolutions around this. And like if, if you're you know, if you're going to build bunkers in New Zealand because you're afraid of, 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 of an uprising, like you might want to think about where that uprising is coming from and what's causing it, perhaps. And maybe you're playing a tiny bit of a role in that and you might want to watch that. So I don't know. It, it's interesting to, to, to noodle on and, and think about. And um, I'll tell you the other thing that's interesting is like, who would want to be a billionaire? This is a thing that, that it's a, people in Silicon Valley are obsessed with being billionaires. Mm. This seems like a huge horrible burden. I mean, being wealthy is, is, is wonderful. I'm, I, I've, I've done very well for myself. I'll, of course, be honest about that. But I wouldn't want to be a billionaire. That sounds horrible, to be honest. And, and uh, I, I just kind of wonder, <laughs> I wonder if people in that position will, will ever come to that realization as well. Well, it's a little bit like being famous, right? I mean, the, there's there are different kinds of fame and different levels, and and there's clearly a kind and a level that you don't want, even if 
uh, you lived under the illusion for some period of time that you might want it, or even if you find it attractive because you can't take your, your eyes or mind off these people, when you actually look at the details, it comes with so much hassle that um, it's just not desirable. Yeah, anonymity is, is actually anonymity and, 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 and you know, having fewer responsibilities in that way seems like the real luxury. Mm-hmm. And, and folks at that level can never have that again once, once you've gotten to that level. So I, I kind of wonder, I almost wonder if any of them wish they weren't there. It's, it seems like a weird thing to think about from everyone else's perspective that, well, gosh, who wouldn't want to be you know, filthy rich like that? But I wonder if those who are, I mean, I've met a few and, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure they really want to be where they're at, but that's where, they're mm-hmm. at, that's where they are. And um, anyway, I think it'd be interesting if one of them stood up or two of them or three of them stood up and, and, and made the change that they want to see in the world themselves because they know, they have to know the government's not going to make this change for them. Well, I, I can tell you what will block that epiphany. And I, so, you know, this is an argument I've encountered several times face-to-face with various billionaires. You know, many give a lot of money away or, or what they consider to be a lot of money away. And they think in their own mind that that is a better use of the money than any use the government would put it toward. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the inefficiency of government is famous. You're funding a bureaucracy that, that in many cases need not exist or is causing its own uh, attendant harms. Whatever can be rationally justified on this front, it's very easy to, to find and you know, perhaps cherry-pick examples of government waste, which seems to discredit the whole enterprise. Now, of course, this argument rests on a pretty myopic non-acknowledgement of just how much any billionaire's success is dependent on all of the good and necessary things that taxes fund and without which it would be impossible to be a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk or a Warren Buffett or anyone else. And these are things that, you know, no, how, no matter how philanthropic you are, your philanthropy is not funding. You know, your philanthropy is not funding the defense of our country, and you're not funding the roads, and you're not funding critical infrastructure. And all of these things need more funding, and our tax dollars are the only way to do that. And so I mean, it's great to be philanthropic. And I, you know, I, I you know, absolutely celebrate what Bill Gates has done through his foundation, and you know, the Giving Pledge is fantastic, and all of that's to the good. But it's not actually a surrogate for paying taxes, and you know, good citizenship w- would require one realize that. I agree, hundred percent with that. And I understand all the arguments around, well, you know, I get, you pay taxes and, you know, let's say one of them paid, you know, 300 million or 500 million or whatever it was into taxes. And they'd be like, I could put that money to better use. But the thing is, it's not up to you, man. Yeah. Like, that's what taxes are. You don't get to decide well, it's, where you're. F- it's also just, it's, it's an argument. You could grant the, the full list of government failures and government waste that any one of these people would put forward. But that's not an argument against paying taxes. That's an argument for better government. Right. So therefore, improve the government, right? And yeah. lend your, if you've got relevant expertise in, you know, data mining, right? You know, if you're Palantir or you're Google or like, yes, then lend your expertise to the government to make, make it less wasteful and, and more competent. But um, that's just an argument for 
for improving what the government does. It's not an argument for starving it of funding and then deciding in the privacy of your compound in New Zealand as you await the pitchforks, you know, whether you want to, to cut a check to your, your favorite charity. Totally. And you know what else is really interesting about the, the New Zealand thing? Hmm. By the way, New Zealand's great, but yeah. like, I don't have a bunker there and I don't have a house or anything like that. I've never even been there. It uh, looks yeah, great. Yeah, it looks beautiful. But uh, yeah, this, it does. J- just to dispel this out for people, this is the, the exit plan of at least a few billionaires is to acquire dual citizenship and build compounds uh, on New Zealand. And some have, have had to game out what you do once the apocalypse has, has occurred and now you're sort of at the mercy of your own bodyguards. How do you protect yourself from your own bodyguards in your compound in New Zealand? It's such a fun thing to talk about. But, but even the, the, the thing is like, would you even want to be alive? Hmm. That's, that's the thing that's so interesting to me is like, I wouldn't want to be alive if I had to go hide out underground and survive this nuclear holocaust or whatever was coming or the, the, the pitchforks, whatever it is, and then emerge again into a life I wouldn't recognize, into a place I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be in. And then all that money I had wouldn't do me any good anyway. It's like the whole notion is so bizarre. It's such a weird degree of self-preservation. And I, I feel like it's, it's just odd. It's really, really, really odd. And I kind of understand it for a moment. And then I'm like, why would you want to live in that? I'd rather just end it. I'd rather be gone. I mean, who wants to deal with that? Well, uh, I'll, I'll remind me. everyone of the scene in Dr. Strangelove when he's uh, describing the, the, the end game logic here. And he, he points out that the women who are admitted into the final mine shaft to survive the nuclear holocaust could be selected for their beauty and, and uh, marriageability with the expected ratios for all the, the old men in there. So I think that's the end game for the adolescent male mind. It's so uh, unhealthy. Life and, underground and for yeah. swingers. I mean, it's almost a, a different type of, of jail to be, to have, have had everything and then have nothing, but still have the everything that you can't do anything with. Hmm. Like what? And, and to think about what their life, what, what they're used to in life. I would guess, this is weird, but I would guess that many of them that would, re, would, would, would go down deep into the bunkers would never want to come back up. That, that the world that they've created for themselves down there would be the only world they'd be able to face at that point, given the fact that everything they had didn't matter anymore. It'd be su- such an existential, interesting moment um, for them. I, I don't know. I'm calling them as a broad, broad thing, but, you know, just... Well, I mean, think, you know, I know certainly several of these people and, and like several of them. I mean, I say, you know, several sure. of them are, yeah, I consider friends, but I mean, to, to rewind back to the point about, um, you know, moral courage and intellectual courage and being able to speak on the, the kinds of issues we've been talking about, I mean, that's where I draw, I would draw the line, right? Like, you know, if a billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars isn't enough to give you the courage to just say what you think when it matters, what's it for? Yeah. That is the whole point of having fuck you money. You can say fuck you when it when you, you actually yeah. should. And that, I mean that's that's the place where the rubber's hitting the road now. And um anyway, I it's um it's great talking to you, Jason. And it, I know I celebrated it up front, but I want to applaud what you've done at Basecamp. Again, I, th- I hope many more CEOs follow your example, and we can let this fever break 
uh, and then we can all recognize how crazy it got for a few years there. I hope that comes quickly. Well, thank you, Sam. I appreciate the opportunity to 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 speak on this and to and to chat with you. I, I've uh, been listening to your podcast for for years, and I'm, I use your product, and I'm a fan. So this was this was a real thrill for me. Thank you. <laughs>